Well, good morning. Hey, on your way in or on your chair, you'll see a piece of paper. And um, for the next two weeks, we are, we are wanting you guys to write down what you do for work. Okay. So that might be an at-home mom and you're with your kids during the daytime. Um, but whatever it is in this series of Garden City, we're talking about moving the world forward. And what is that thing that you engage in mostly? Jason, I'm, I am flopping. Is this? No, I know. You're looking like, honey, I'm with you. But I also feel like I didn't explain that very well. Did it make sense? It's super clear. Thank you. Okay, while you're writing those, thank you. I'm going to need more of that, a lot more of that. While you're writing those things down, you can put your name or not put your name. That's optional. Um, but at the back of church this morning on your way out, there will be that little stand there with a basket on top of it. And you can throw your pen and your paper in that. And if you do it this week, then you don't have to do it next week because you've done the homework, right? And you just sort of look at people while they're filling theirs out next week. I'm kidding. Let's be really gracious and fill it out twice if you want to. Um, but while you're writing that down, let me just tell you a little story. It's been a morning. You guys ever had one of those? Yeah, it's been a morning. So got a call at 8.17, not that I was noticing the time. Phone rang. Alex, who normally leads worship, is sick this morning, so he couldn't be here. Um, we had already had a cancellation for our drummer, so moved Tony from playing the bass guitar to the drums. So then we have no lead guitar. I was like, called Tony. I was like, is there any way you could bring your guitar? He's like, oh, I haven't practiced at all. I'm like, I know, and you have me on the keyboard. <laughs> so that should be really special. I said, but it's fine. We have Heidi. She ha she's playing violin. It'll be fine. And she'll just carry us. And he says, oh, did you not get her text? <laughs> she's also sick. I was like, okay, uh, I'm going to go ahead and make eight cups of coffee, and I'm on my way. Um, so that has been this morning. So we got done with our practice, and I felt like, okay, I mean, that's going to happen. You guys are going to be nice and loud. And usually when that much adversity happens, something good's coming. So I was like, okay, I'm going to lean into that, right? So I walked next door to check in on Kids Church, and I said, hey, do you guys have everything? Do you need any help? And they're like, yeah, we got it. Wait, what? what's actually happening? They're like, the email you sent us was October 2nd's curriculum, and we didn't realize it till this morning, <laughs> so we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> so we don't know what we're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Jason, how you feeling? <laughs> okay, guys, there is one person ready for today. One person. <laughs> um, and so with that in mind, let me just tell you, I don't have a lot of announcements for us outside of fill out your communication card, please. All good things, all good things. Um, we're going to need some encouragement. Um, this is COVID. This is life with the flu and COVID combined. And we always say we will come together and do the best that we can and that is what I love about this church family, that it is not on me to figure that out. When we have things like this, everyone rallies together and makes it happen. And I'm just so, so grateful that we don't have people sitting back going, that wasn't as good of a show as I was thinking it would be. It's just like, here we are. 
we are family, and sometimes it's hard getting here. So I'm going to pray again, because why not, um, and just give this to God. God, it's been a rough go getting here, and you know all about that. But I do know that where we are gathered, you are in our midst. And I have great confidence in how you are going to move in spite of the hiccups that it took to get here. God, we are bringing our best offering to you this morning. Kids, church workers, volunteers are giving their best to you this morning. Would you take that and would you multiply it? And would you create in us this sweetness, this family knit together because of it? God, we love you. You deserve um, our presence and the best that we have. It's in your name I pray. Amen. thinking to myself, um, so we, you know, I, I knew about the, I didn't know what was going on next door, but I knew about what was in here, because I knew who was supposed to be on, and how that was all going to work, and I thought to myself, I wonder if Jen will say anything about it, <laughs> and let the people know, <laughs> oh yeah, uh, of course, um, but I will also say, my gosh, you know what, for a really stripped down, not what we had planned thing, was that beautiful, or what, yes, Giovanna, you sing like an angel, and with, with Jen together, and then Tony picking the strings, rocking the, it's so good. Well, you guys, we are, we are in this series called Garden City, and just a little quick recap. The name comes from an interesting theme in scripture, because in the beginning, God creates a garden, and he puts human, humans in it says, uh, this is Genesis 1.28, it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then in Genesis 2, we see that this garden is made up of all these incredible raw materials. There's trees, there's a forest, there's rocks and, and stones and, and a river. There's precious minerals down beneath the earth's crust. There's energy in the wind and in the, in the moving water. And Adam and Eve are called to work it and take care of it to cultivate it, develop it, or draw out its, its potential. And, and as we've seen, Tim Keller defines work this way. He says, it's, it's rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. And this has kind of been our working definition of work for these past few weeks. So when a farmer takes soil and seed and water and wind and sun and rearranges it into a crop for people to eat and live off of and enjoy, or when a builder takes wood and stone and other materials and builds a neighborhood where people can live, or where when a software engineer develops a new app or a new program for people to use, or when a massive team of people takes all kinds of raw materials and builds a 747 that transports people all over the world, 
Or when a, a mom or dad takes a child, this unformed body and soul, and provides love and instruction and education and boundaries and rearranges it into a human being that can love and serve society. That is a deep work of cultivation. So all over planet Earth, people are hard at work. They're rearranging raw materials into something more, into something better. There's beauty, there's art, functionality, right? There's Excel sheets, there's systems, there's architecture, technology, roads, bridges, school systems, curriculum. All of this is an expansion of what Adam and Eve began in the beginning because the garden was made to be dynamic, not static. Or said another way, the garden was a project, not a product. Meaning the garden was designed to go somewhere. And this is cool. Uh, the very last two chapters of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, they're all about the future. They're all about the future, and there's imagery of where everything that God is up to is, is all heading. And the vision of those two chapters is actually dripping with allusions to the garden. The, the picture or the idea is that what was lost will one day be restored in full. And the writer, John, is saying that the future is, is actually a return to the past. It's a return to the Garden of Eden, except that in Revelation, it's not exactly a garden anymore. The future is, is more of a garden-like city. So this, this picture in Revelation is, is a garden-esque, it, it's garden-esque for sure, but there's also, like, there's architecture and there's walls and gates and streets and dwellings and, and urban planning. It has culture, right? There's food and drink and music and fashion. It, it's no longer an undeveloped, like, undeveloped expanse that's, that's latent with potential. It's actually been developed into something that is functional and beautiful. Why? Because the garden was never supposed to stay a garden. The garden was always intended to become a garden-like city. This is what humans were put into the garden to do. This, this is a core part of, of what it means to be human. Okay, today, I want to, that's recap. Today, I, I want to deal with an elephant in the room. So, if we're talking about doing garden-like work in partnership with God, we're faced immediately with a problem. Here's the problem. We don't live in Eden anymore, right? All this talk about work being beautiful and meaningful and awesome and soul-filling, it's a tad unrealistic, don't you think? I mean, we don't work in the, in the Garden of Eden. We, we work in a very fallen world, right? So I don't live next to the Tigris or the Euphrates with fruit everywhere. My, my wife's name is not Eve, I don't commute to work every day in the nude. And, and you are welcome for that. Right? So God's vision of human beings living as kings and queens and ruling over this beautiful earth with love in partnership with him under his generous and loving authority, drawing out the world's potential, developing it for human thriving. Oh, man, like that vision, that vision was beautiful and short-lived. The, the first humans didn't trust God and live in harmony with him in the garden, and the fallout was all-encompassing and disastrous. So God comes to Eden in search of his beloved Adam and Eve, and where are they? 
Well, they're, they're hiding in the bushes. So this place called Eden, which just means delight, this place of safety and vulnerability and beauty and love is now a place of fear and shame and regret. And, and we see that the creator, who thus far in the story has been marked by creativity and power and freedom and love and kindness, does something that feels, I think, to most of us, very out of character. He curses his people. Right? To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So Eve is cursed with childbirth and a desire for intimacy that she can't get. And childbirth, which was once joyful, is now painful. And marriage, which was at one point unhindered, unhindered intimacy, is now filled with distance and frustration and disappointment. And to Adam, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the man is cursed in his relationship to the ground. What, what once was life-giving is now exhausting and frustrating and difficult. There are now thorns and thistles, meaning even good work comes with fatigue and frustration. And in both cases, something good and something beautiful has been stripped of its joy, the, the blessing of childbearing and the blessing of work. Now, I said early on, work itself is not a curse. Work is still a blessing, but the process of doing work has been cursed, right? There's all kinds of connections and parallels to the, the curse of childbearing. Childbearing has been cursed, but children are still a gift, yes? Because of sin, childbearing is now painful, and parenting is hard. We got any parents in here? Parenting is hard, right? It's difficult. It saps your energy. It can be uber-frustrating, but it's still a good thing. And the same is true with work. At its core, work is still very much a blessing. The problem is that once was, what once was filled with joy is now like a mixed bag. There's still joy in work, for sure, but there's also frustration. So both childbearing and working the earth are now painful labor. And like, even if we're fortunate enough to find our dream job, it is still exhausting and infuriating sometimes. So um, let's be honest. Most people are not working their dream job. In fact, I mean, not to brag or anything, but if you are kind of working your dream job, would you just put your hand up? God bless you guys. Everyone else here hates you. Right, because many of you, you, you can't make a living doing what you, what you love most. So you either have to give it up altogether or you have to get a day job and, and then do what you love in whatever free time you can scrounge up after that. So here's the sad reality of work in a world that's under the curse. It's hard. And here's something else. It's really only in the first world that we even talk of having a dream job. 
Like in the developing world, or also known as the majority world, because most of the seven uh, plus billion people on earth live there, most people live hand to mouth. They work all day in a field or in a factory just to eke out enough to survive. And the workers are almost totally disconnected from the product. Like after a day's work, there's no feeling of accomplishment or pride or satisfaction. The work is dehumanizing and they have no real sense of contribution. And then even in the first world, I mean, many are, many are pretty disconnected from the product, the good or the service that they provide. There's no, there's no real sense that they serve people or are moving the world forward. They punch in, they do what they're told until time expires, and at the end of it all, they feel pretty insignificant. And yet for many of us, in spite of all of that, we still look to our work, whatever it is that we do, whether it's paid or unpaid, for our identity and our significance. We just do. It's, it's like it comes natural to us. And this is not all bad. I think it's not all bad because I think that we are wired by God to do this to a degree. But, it, but if we define who we are only by what we do, whether that's being a mommy or a CEO, then we're standing on dangerous ground. Uh, one of the first stories that we read after the Garden of Eden fiasco is about a building project in a city called Babel, or if you're Mumford and Sons, Babel. Uh, but it goes like this. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now, this is good so far. Humanity is moving eastward, fulfilling God's mandate, right, which is be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. They're doing that. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. So they invent this new technology, the brick. This is a giant leap towards civilization. Now they can build cheaper, faster, stronger, taller. But this is where the story turns. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Wait, what? Being scattered over the face of the whole earth is a good thing, right? In fact, like that's the whole, that's what they're supposed to be doing. But in an act of rebellion, they say, no, 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 no. We're staying right here. We're going to build a tower that reaches to the heavens, which is fascinating because the heavens are where God is. So they are looking to a building project to work for an artificial man-made kind of spirituality, a sense of meaning and purpose that can actually only be found in God himself. And what's the point? Well, they say, we're doing this so that we may make a name for ourselves. They're looking to their work for identity and status. They're using work as a rating system to see how they measure up to others. They're looking around at the rest of the world, the rest of the peoples, and they're like, oh, your tower's nice, but it's not as big as ours. You guys, it takes all that I have in me to resist some jokes right here. So we're moving on. Okay, so when you know the rest of the story, this whole thing ends up being a disaster. When we do our work exclusively or at least primarily just to bring glory to ourselves, it kind of goes bad on us. 
And that's exactly what, ha- what happens in Babel. In the end, it says, the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. And so here we are now in our modern day with all of our cultural advancements with like Wikipedia and Instagram and, and be real so we can be authentic for real. If you haven't heard of be real, you have to check it out. It's the future. Right? Oh, yeah, it's. So with all of our societal and technological advances, here's the thing. Have we really outgrown the, the people of Babel? I mean, it seems to me that as human beings, we, we, we have this bent to look t- toward our work for significance that we really can only find in God. And if we unhitch our work from God, work becomes a God in itself. And, and for some, work can become like as addictive as any narcotic. Even if it's hard and difficult and frustrating at times, that, that sense of accomplishment, that sense of I, I'm, I'm somebody, that sense of achievement and success, it's a buzz that we can crave and it can become intoxicating. And soon, apart from God, what we're actually worshiping is our career, the success, the accolades, the, the wow we get from people, the titles, the promotions, the salary bumps that come along the way. It becomes our pursuit. It becomes what we worship and it becomes our identity. Even if our work isn't paid, even if it's being mom or dad, this can become our identity too, right? Apart from God, we just start worshiping this role that we play. And that's the tricky thing about work. It's a good thing that we can so quickly make everything. It's doing a good thing, but for the wrong reasons. And here's my confession to you. Nowhere is this more tempting than in my job. Right, like I teach the scriptures, I invite people to follow Jesus, I build community, uh, hopefully, I, I'm, I'm trying to help people find freedom from addictions or find a, a better kind of life in the way of Jesus and work together to, to fight poverty and injustice and some of the horrible things in our world. But it's actually super tempting to do all of this good stuff for the wrong reasons. To do it for my ego or for people to think I'm like awesome or all kinds of other things that my, my really flawed heart can conjure up, and I will not lay that all out right now. But if it becomes about making a name for myself or any other selfish, like, me-centered motive, it is bound to go bad for me, and it's bound eventually to go bad for you. But it, it isn't just pastors, right? This is a temptation for any kind of work. You, you can work as an act of worship to God to do something that moves the world forward and to serve others, or you can be motivated to work, um, just t- to work hard thinking, yeah, well, if I close this deal or if I make this sale or if I get this promotion or as a parent, if my kid can be successful enough and impressive enough or I, I just I look like a fantastic mommy. You know, or I'll get recognition at work or from my friends or from my parents or from my siblings or whoever the target audience is that's out there. And it's just our own tower to make a name for ourselves. Now, some of you are like, okay, I hear what you're saying. I've seen that in people. But you're like, what is wrong with those people? Like, I hate my job. I hate work 
pretty much of any kind. I try to get out of it as much as possible. And so I, 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 I couldn't be farther from worshiping it. And so let me just say, maybe for you, it's not work that's your Tower of Babel. It's rest. Live for the weekend is your motto. TGIF, baby. For you, the goal is to make as much money as possible with as little work as possible so that you can get off of work and go play. For you, your identity isn't found in your work. It's found in recreation. It's found in whatever it is that you go do for fun. And in the same way that other people draw their identity from work, you, you look to rest or play or leisure for yours. You would say, I'm a musician. You know, I'm an athlete. I'm a backpacker. I am a world-class wine taster, right? I'm a golfer. I'm a reader. I'm a foodie. I'm a traveler. You would not believe the places I've been. I'm a mountain biker. I'm a blogger. I'm a hunter. I'm a coach. We're starving for identity, and even more, we're starving to belong to community. And that desire isn't all bad. It's, it's, it's in us because God put us there. But when we build our identity solely on what we do for fun, we turn music or sport or food or travel or whatever into a God. And here's why this is a problem. Because whether your God becomes work or play or some combo of the two, both are on a collision course with disillusionment. Because work, no matter how great your job is, it's never enough. Work is a to-do list that never ends. It's a hamster wheel spinning endlessly. And rest, because whatever it is, that trip to Italy, right, that weekend seeing your favorite band at the gorge, the skiing the Alps, it, it, it's never going to be quite perfect. And in the end, you will feel a sense of void. Now, we are hardwired as human beings to contribute in a meaningful way to the world. So if all we ever do is consume, 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 no matter how great that consumption is, after a while, we will feel empty. We will have this nagging sense of what is the point? What's it all for? There's an entire book in the Bible written about this, and um, it's called, does anybody know what it's called? Ecclesiastes. And it's written by a king. Uh, now, this is a guy who had abundant resources. And um, so he went on a hunt for satisfaction with all of his resources thrown at it. He went on this hunt for satisfaction, and he looked everywhere but God. But no matter where he tried, he came up empty in the end. What he was looking for just continually evaded him. And he talks again and again about how everything is meaningless. He can't find lasting satisfaction anywhere, he says, under the sun, which is a euphemism for this life apart from God. The king tries everything, education, success, wealth, fun, pleasure. He even tries working really hard, accomplishing stuff. Listen to his rant. He says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to, to water groves of flourishing trees. Yet when I, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So I hated life because, is anyone depressed yet? So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, 
For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. Let's pray. <laughs> so, before this sermon, like, sucks all, any ounce of joy that's left in the room, just right out of you, um, let, let's keep in mind, this is a picture of life, as he says, under the sun. This is what work looks like if we do it apart from God. And still, I, I think all of us can relate to the king's angst at some level. Eventually, most of our work will be washed away by history. I mean, <laughs> these videos are on the YouTube, so they're here for eternity, Right, these sermon videos? I mean, people are going to watch these for eternity. So, so uh, what you do is gone, but, I, you know. <laughs> no, like, it, it, it's going to be washed away by history. Um, and if I'm into my work for myself, and this life is all there is, then the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is absolutely right. This is all meaningless. But Jesus, here's the thing. We follow one who came to insist. Jesus insisted. This is not all there is. This is far from meaningless. Your life can matter. And yet for so many, it does feel pretty meaningless. Or at least like a pretty big letdown. And this is especially true for younger generations. Okay, this, here's why. Our grandparents or great-grandparents, depending on how old you are, they grew up in the Great Depression, right? And then they lived through World War II. And here's how they felt. They were ecstatic just to have a job, right? Safety and security was a high enough goal to shoot for. If they could pay the mortgage, put food on the table, they were happy. The next generation took it a step further. They wanted more than a steady job that could pay the bills. They wanted to make money, a lot of it. They wanted to buy stuff. They wanted to go on vacation, not to like Wenatchee. They wanted to go somewhere tropical, <laughs> right? Okay, then the next generation, so my generation, Generation X, how many of you are in here? Let's go. Uh, in my, gener my Generation X, and then you silly millennials, My generation took it a, a step further, and then you guys, you millennials, you have left the atmosphere. And so now, we, we're, not, we're, not we're not happy with a high-paying job and a nice car and occasional expensive vacations even. We want all our dreams to come true. We, we want fulfillment from our work. And, and here's the thing. In, in our culture, in this day and time, we have a realistic shot at finding it. Why? Because we are the children of affluence. Uh, not all of us. I mean, not everybody is, but many of us. And so ironically, uh, we don't even think of ourselves as, as, as wealthy. But we are. are. Are you kidding me? I was raised in a middle-class family in a Seattle suburb. Okay, I was brought up mostly by a single mom who was an elementary school teacher. And here's what I'll, I'll tell you. I grew up a child of privilege. I was and still am rich. So if you grew up in middle-class America, you are rich. And, and wealth means options. 
right? Our generation has so many more options than our grandparents or great-grandparents. I mean, think of all that we have access to that they could have never dreamed of. Now, this is a huge blessing, but it's also kind of a curse. I mean, for thousands of years until recently in human history, here's what you did for work. You did whatever your, your father or your mother did before you. It was predetermined for you. If your father was a king, you were a king. If he was a farmer, you were a farmer, usually on the same plot of land, right? If your father was a blacksmith, you were a blacksmith. In fact, Smith is such a common last name these days, right? If your name is Smith, most likely at some point, somewhere in the family line, there was a blacksmith, right? And many last names sort of reflect this historic family business thing. Right? There's Baker, Taylor, Fisher, Miller, Gardner, Huguenin. <laughs> you guys know about the Huguenins. I mean, it's, just, it's just a family business of awesomeness. <laughs> I, I, have no, I, I have no idea what that means. Or it's, so I, what I do know is that my people were watchmakers. So that's pretty cool. If you own a Huguenin watch and it still works, which it should, um, it's probably worth quite a bit of money. I have totally digressed. Okay, my, <laughs> my, my point is that down through history and in the majority world today, most people don't get to choose what they do for a living. Like choosing your career is, is a luxury of the affluent. For most people on planet Earth, even today, they have to take any work that they can get just to be able to survive. They do not wake up and think to themselves, what's my dream? They can only afford to think, how am I going to survive? They'll do almost anything just to be able to scrape out a living somehow. But, but in our culture of abundance and opportunity, it's like we have the opposite problem. We have so many options that it's intimidating and almost overwhelming. I mean, we can just be paralyzed. Because I, I chose to be a pastor. I chose this. I could have chosen other things. I, I could have been a psychologist. I could have been a coach. could have been a teacher. I could have been a sports radio talk show host. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the affirmation. My kids tell me that I would have been an amazing, uh, uh, like, baseball sports broadcaster. Um, and maybe that would have been awesome. And maybe I would have been awesome. And maybe I've missed my calling. <laughs> you know, right? But this is what we do. Like, how, well, how will I ever know? But I, I'm thankful to live in a culture of affluence where all these options exist, but the array of choices can be paralyzing. Like, there's a sense of, what if I choose wrong? And then once we settle on a career, our expectations are so high for it, right? Food on the table, and, and uh, food on the table may have been enough for, for grandma and grandpa. Mom and dad, they had a nice TV and went on vacation every once in a while, and they got to travel some amazing places, but that's not enough for us. Now, we want to do all of that, and we want to do something we love. And here's what I'll tell you. There is nothing wrong with wanting that. Absolutely nothing. I mean, one of the main things that I, I want us to take away from this series is that what you do for work matters. It matters to the world, and it matters to God. So the option to choose something you love is a luxury of the rich, but that's our generation. So if you can take advantage of it, you should take advantage of that. 
But even if you are fortunate enough to make a living doing something that you love, there are a few things to be real about. One, our dreams will probably take way longer than we expect. I mean, not to you know, stereotype or anything, but millennials. <laughs> I've shown up to work every day for a month. I think I'm due for a raise, don't you? <laughs> okay, so, okay. so to, to really build and live into something deep and beautiful, um, let's think about this. It, it doesn't often happen in like weeks or months, right? It takes years and years of working and getting better and learning and honing and developing and failing and then trying again and then tweaking something and then trying again and then failing and doing, it's, this is how it goes, okay? Okay, second, other people will do it better than us. No matter how smart or hardworking or gifted or enthusiastic we are, there will always be somebody that does it better than us. So if the main goal is to outperform some other person or group, we will likely spend most of our life feeling inferior. And I'll tell you something. You would think that pastors would be above this, that we would be wiser and more mature and selfless than that. I'm going to let you in on a little trade secret. When I get together with other pastors, like at a conference, especially when there's a whole bunch of them all in the same room, you guys, it can be horrible. Uh, and sometimes I, I, like, I feel all this weird stuff bubbling up in me, and I can see that it's bubbling up in them. I'm like, dude, really? But this is a temptation for every human being, right? But what I've also discovered is that nothing steals my joy and love for others faster than to get in the whole comparison game. I mean, my job as the pastor of this church is to love you. It's to serve you. It's to serve you using the gifts that I have. My job is not to be the best pastor in the world. My job is to be the best pastor I can be and the best husband I can be and the best father that I can be. The comparison game is a death trap. And this is just as true in any, any kind of career or any kind of work or any place that we would go to get our identity. This is true in every world. If you play the game, you will lose. Someone will be better. And in trying to outshine and outclimb, you will lose yourself along the way. Okay, third. Now stay with me. This really depressing part is almost over. Third. If and when we finally find a job we love and we make it and are successful, okay, third, it's never quite as great as we'd hoped. Or if it is, the awesomeness fades eventually. So what happens is most of us live with a profound sense of letdown and disillusionment. Like setting realistic expectations is essential for discovering happiness. Right, we all have expectations, and, and here's how happiness works. If you do better than your expectations, the odds are high that you will feel happy. If your life doesn't measure up to what you were expecting, the odds are, no matter how successful you are, you will mostly feel unhappy. Now, this is great news for grandma and grandpa, or great-grandma and great-grandpa, fresh out of the Depression, right? They expected very little, and they got better than they hoped. But this is a tough reality for a generation of dreamers marked by off-the-charts high expectations. 
My point is simply that we need to expect that work will be a mixed bag. Work will be filled with good and with bad. I mean, this is life after the fall. This is living in a world filled with thorns and thistles. We should expect work to give us a sense of meaning, hopefully, and to be frustrated regularly by whatever it is that we do. We will never find the happiness or satisfaction we are seeking in our work or in our rest. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. What if God set it up this way? I mean, after all, God was the one who cursed the ground. Like, we sinned, but God cursed the ground. He stopped it from being all that it once was. Why would God do that? Doesn't he love us? Doesn't he want us to be happy? Is God mean? Well, here's an idea to consider. Maybe the curse drives us back to God. I mean, if we were able to find all that we seek in our family or in relationships or in parenting or if we were able to find it in our work or in how we play, it would be so easy for us to miss the most beautiful part of being human, seeking, finding, and knowing God himself. But here's the the beauty of reality. We'll never find contentment apart from him. Whether we're looking to the family, marriage, childbearing, parenting, relationships, to our work, our career, what we accomplish, even to how we rest, right? We're never going to find everything that we're looking for in those things, in in play, in leisure and entertainment, food and drink, vacation, the golf, the golf, the golf, uh, the mariners. Are any of you completely satisfied? So none of these things, as fantastic as they all are, will, uh, as they will produce all that we crave. At least not by themselves, they won't. And what we find is that that ache that we feel often, it pushes us to someone. Now, I'm not saying that these things are worthless. I'm not saying that at all. I, I, they have real meaning and they have real value. All these things do. They're necessary and extremely port- important part of life. But what I'm saying is that if we discover God and walk with him in all of these everyday things, I mean, think of the story of the fall in Eden. When, when God comes to Adam and Eve, when they're hiding in the bushes, he comes right after they mess up big. Now, why does God do that? Because that's what God is like. He comes searching. He, he doesn't hang back like arms crossed, mad and withdrawn. He doesn't, he doesn't wait for them to come to him. He doesn't wait for them to figure it out. He comes to them right in their mess and their failure. And, and often we expect to find God only when we go when, when in the places where we go to him. Like we think, if I want to find God, I go to church. Or I, I, I'm going to find him in reading the scriptures or in prayer. And he's there, right? These are important things and we need to do them. But he's God. He's everywhere. God is in the places that we least expect him. He's he's at the office. He's on our Zoom call. He's in a meeting that's spiraling out of control. He's in our biology class. He's in the kitchen. He is is there when when you take time away on Maui, right? And for some of us, the last place that we would expect to find God is at the job that we dislike. I just want to say, what if that's one of, one of the places that we should look most? I mean, most of us spend most of our life at work. Wherever you work, wherever you do, whatever you do, God is there. 
He's doing what he always does. He's inviting you to him, and he's inviting you to experience him and his presence. In fact, what if the frustrations of work actually serve to drive us toward him? What if the cursed ground reminds us of our need of our Father? I mean, I'll tell you guys, I, I, I love what I do. I love what I do. I love this. I love you guys. I do. There are still frustrations. And here's what I've noticed. It's often the hard stuff that drives me to God most. And that's not just true because I'm a pastor and I work in a church. Um, some of you may not realize this. This might be groundbreaking. I was not born a pastor. I've had other jobs. Um, I, know, some of you, I know, that's crazy. Um, most memorable job I ever had besides, besides this was being an iron worker. Some of you are like, you were an iron worker? I was. I worked at uh, British Petroleum Oil Refinery in Ferndale, Washington, and I put on coveralls and a hard hat every day for a year and a half. So I had just graduated from seminary with a master's in Bible and theology. I mean, what more, to, what more could you do to prepare yourself to be an iron worker? <laughs> and, and Jen and I were almost ready to move here and start Brookview. Uh, I just needed a job, you guys, for like six to eight weeks until, you know, we were able to pack up. And, and so I got hired to be a temporary laborer at the refinery. And the job was supposed to last six to eight weeks, which was perfect because we were moving here. And then the plans for coming here hit several snags and got delayed. And so this six-week job in the refinery turned into a year and a half. And here's what I'll tell you. I hated the job. I hated it. Um, we had two little kids at home. We had a baby and a toddler at home, and, and this job paid really well. And so I went every day. And in certain stretches, I worked as much as 80 hours a week for three, four, five weeks in a row. It but it was about as far away from my dream job as you can get. To actually, to me, it felt like hell on earth. I, but I had to go, so I went. And at first, I felt so inadequate. Like, I had no training for this. I remember one day, one of my coworkers handed me two metal plates about this big, and he said, hey, go over to the shop and bevel the edges. <laughs> so I nodded, like I knew what he meant, and I just waited hoping he was going to give me more detail. <laughs> Does anybody know how to bevel edges in here? God bless you guys, <laughs> bevelers. So, so after a long, ex, you know, awkward exchange where he said, and I'm just looking at him like a lost puppy, he, he's like, what are you waiting for? And so I had to, like, say it. I had to confess. I'm so sorry. I don't know how to bevel. And he was in complete shock. You don't know how to bevel? And then he just, it was like, it was, my, it was like mind-blowing. He, like, he was like, what the bleep is wrong with you? Like, you don't know how to bevel. Like, like what, are you, what are you, an idiot? Like, what, what did you skip metal shop too much in high school? And I was like, yeah. 
I skipped all of it. <laughs> right? He's like, he's just like, what the bleep, bleep, bleep? Who hired you? What the bleep? And he said, all right, come follow me. So he grabbed me and took me in the shop, and he showed me how to bevel. That day, you guys, I learned how to bevel. <laughs> and I will have you know, within a day or so, I became a world-class beveler. Uh, in fact, over time, what happened in the refineries, I learned how to do all kinds of stuff. So over a year and a half, I went from total incompetence <laughs> to being reasonably serviceable as an iron worker. Now, some of you might be wondering, like, if you were that incompetent, how did you keep your job? Here's how I kept my job. I showed up every day, not drunk. <laughs> and I was humble and teachable. And so over, after a while, my coworkers kind of liked me. And, and then I, 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 was, I realized I, I was authentically impressed by it. They could do stuff that I couldn't do. And I was impressed, like, really, like, completely, honestly. And so, and I told them that. And they're like, we like you. Uh, my closest friend in that season was a welder named Mike. And he was, he was uh, like, amazing. We, we would get partnered up on jobs all the time. And I think what happened is he just requested me. And so I would be the, the fitter. Uh, who kind of put the pieces together and beveled edges and got everything set up. And then uh, if it couldn't all be clamped down and stuff, I would hold it and he, he would weld it. And you guys, you think, okay, how hard is welding? Well, in a refinery like that, welding is really hard. And Mike was so stinking good at his job because here's why. He could weld like around a, a rat's nest of pipes that he couldn't even see where he's welding. And he would use a mirror to be able to do it. Um, in fact, this, this guy, who was, he's a big fella, like 6'3", 240, and he could weld hanging upside down, contorted around pipes with his left hand using a mirror with it raining sideways and the wind howling. So I, I'm like watching this guy and I'm just like, dude, it is crazy that you can do that. And he was like, I like you. <laughs> So he kind of took me under his wing and he taught me all kinds of stuff. But here's what I will tell you guys. In spite of that, even as I get better at it, I hated the job. I hated it. Um, it, didn't well, it didn't align well with my skill set. And the culture of the refinery was horrible. It was just negative and crass. And so people could be like super immature. It was amazing how immature grown men and grown women can be. And just mean to each other. It was like everybody was on guard all the time. They were always trying to find somebody lower than them to pick on, sort of to deflect everyone else's negativity onto someone else because if you can get everybody picking on this guy, then you're safe at least for a few minutes, right? So I hated the culture. I hated the work. I hated working in cold rain. I hated wearing coveralls and Tyvek rain gear all day. I hated that we had to use ear protection in most, most places that we were working, and it made it almost impossible to, like, talk with people and relate to people. I, I wanted to be starting a church, right? Not working iron. But here's what I'll tell you. I was so deeply connected to God in that season. And part of the reason is that the discomfort of all of the work, like the thorns and the thistles of, of all of it, it caused me to lean on God hard every day. I, I had like I had a routine. 
um, I, I worked long days and we had two little ones at home. And so I had to get creative about trying to figure out some time with God. And so my routine was I would I'd get to work about 20 minutes early every day. We started at 630. I'd get there about six o'clock or so and sit in the parking lot. And I would read the Gospel of John for a few minutes until something kind of hit me. And I would use whatever that was that was hitting me to kind of launch me into a prayer. And then as I would continue to pray, and as I was sitting in my car and I was looking at the refinery, I would almost always end up praying for the people I worked with. You know, it was just like, and we, at any time, we had anywhere from five to eight people on our crew. And so I'd start praying about whatever, but in the end, I'd end up praying for Mike and Cindy and Cleve and Don and Tony. And then I would head in, throw my coveralls on, and get after it. But all day, I would encounter stuff, and it was just like, okay, God help me. Like, I would just have these little five-second prayers all day long. God help me. If someone on the crew wanted to have a deeper conversation with me about something meaningful in life, God help me. If the jokes at the lunch table were getting crass, everyone would look at me right? The Christian. God help me. God help me. Do I, do I look away? Do I pretend that I didn't get it? Do I laugh? I mean, it was, it was crude and everything, but it was pretty funny. <laughs> oh, well, what do I do here? God help me, right? But all day I, I'd look at these people and think, God loves these people. And, and I want to see these people like he does. And so God help me. I, I want to build them up and I want to serve them and I want to encourage them and I want to do it, but not in a cheesy, weird kind of way. So God help me. This place is so negative and so hard and I want to be salt and light here. God help me. I feel totally inadequate and embarrassed sometimes. God help me. This job is dangerous and I could get seriously injured. God help me. Mike is asking questions about you right now, God. God help me. I mean, the job was, was hard, and there was a lot that I didn't like about it. But, but as I, I look at my walk with Jesus, in that season, I was as close to Jesus then as I am now. And I, I am, I, hopefully I'm more mature in some ways. But I was as connected to Jesus in that refinery season as I have been in 20 years serving you guys as a pastor. The, the ground is cursed, and I needed help. And so I asked over and over, God, help me. And I don't, I don't know what you guys are facing with whatever you do for work these days. But I know this. Every job is a mixed bag. All work includes frustration. So this is what I want you to consider. What if you let the hard parts of whatever it is, whatever the work is that you do, what if you let the frustration, what if you let the hard parts of it drive you toward the Father? Father in heaven, I thank you that you are present in all places, in everything. You're present with us as we're raising our kids. You're present with us in the middle of the night, feeding and comforting crying children. I thank you that you're in 
um, what feels like really meaningless meetings that we have to be at for work. I'm thankful that you are in every office, that you are in every kind of work that there is all over planet Earth, and that you are saying to every single one of us, I'm here. Walk with me in this. God, we need you. And I pray that you would help us to see how present you are, how concerned you are about everything that we're doing, and you would help us to walk with you in it all for your glory and that you would fill us with joy, you would fill us with courage, you'd fill us with patience, you'd fill us with everything that we need to be the kind of people you're calling us to be in whatever environment we go into every single day. God, what an impact we can make, just those of us in this room, if we do just that. And so, God help us.